Right, we are in uh, Colossians, and as I mentioned, we uh, dip into chapter 4 this evening. Uh, One uh, verse alone, uh, and it is a verse that concludes uh, the section um, preceding in chapter 3, a section having to do with, uh, again, a human relationship. Uh, We saw wives and husbands, verses 18 and 19, children and their parents, uh, verses 20 and 21, and then uh, verse 22, on down through now chapter 4, verse 1, we have the relationship of servants or slaves with their masters. And so again, clearly these are all human relationships. Uh, There is some similarity uh, in all of these relationships. Uh, For example... Uh, Notice the first two words of verse 20. Children, obey. Notice the first two words of verse 22. Servants, obey. And so there's similarity here uh, in the relationship. There was one party to the relationship, fathers or parents, that is in a position of authority over the other party. In verse 22, we have one party to the relationship, masters, who are in a position of authority over the other party to the relationship, relationship, slaves. And uh, that same word obey, as we pointed out last time, is also found in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, where uh, we are told of Sarah's obedience to her husband, Abraham. And so that actually takes us back to that first uh, relationship, wives and husbands, in verses 18 and 19. And so there is similarity, right, in that uh, there is one of the parties that has a position of authority or headship and another party that is subject unto the other. And so that being the case, um, there's overlap, right? Obviously, there's specific differences in the relationships and so on. Uh, but there is also some overlap, some similarity. And so this evening, as we direct our attention to verse 1 of chapter 4, that speaks specifically to masters, um, and we think of our own situation and say, well, there's probably not too many of us that are masters, certainly not in the literal sense of masters and slaves, but even in the sense of um, a common uh, our day application would be employers with employees, right? So that's often uh, some parallels that are driven, uh, drawn from that particular instruction. And so many of us would not be employers. But given that there's similarity in these relationships, as we've already pointed out, we can still learn something, right, that may be applicable to our relationship, either as a husband or as a parent or a grandparent or whatever, right? So um, there's benefit for us in considering this instruction to masters. And beyond that, there's benefit in knowing what the Lord requires and how the Lord instructs those that are in those positions so that even if we are not in that position, we can pray 
for those that are, right? And I ask that the Lord would help them to understand their responsibilities and to fulfill them in a way that brings honor to the Lord. Uh, So here we are dealing with the the authority side of the slave-master relationship. And what we're going to do is something that uh, sometimes I do, uh, not always, but um, we are doing it this evening. We're going to start at the end of the verse, right? Uh, The last shall be first tonight. So the end of the verse says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so the title of the message this evening is Masters Have a Master. And my first point is this, taken again from that final phrase of verse 1. My first point is this, as do the slaves, so the masters have a master in heaven. All right, so that phrase in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Speaking to masters, you pick up the first word in the verse, masters, you also have a master in heaven. And as we saw in dealing with uh, this instruction in verse 22 and following, the Apostle Paul called slaves to fear God, verse 22, last phrase, To verse 23, do whatsoever they did as to the Lord. And then in verse 24, all of this because they served the Lord Christ, right? And so even as he's instructing earthly slaves in their relationship to their earthly masters, he's challenging the slave to recognize that their service is not just to that earthly master, it's to this heavenly master, right? This master in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so that's why I say, as do the slaves, so the masters have a master in heaven. And so here in chapter 4, verse 1, the apostle reminds masters that they also, and again, even note that language, you also have a master in heaven, right? So that's picking up on the fact that he already taught the slaves that they have a master. Now, as he's turning to speak to the masters, he says, you also have a master in heaven. So both earthly slaves and earthly masters have a master in heaven. And that master is the Lord. And as it is stated in verse 25, it's the Lord Christ. And of course, what is interesting is the word translated Lord that again and again and again and again and like 700 times almost in the New Testament is speaking of the Lord. It's the same word that's translated master in chapter 4, verse 1. Same word. Right? 
And so uh, he's speaking to earthly masters and saying, you have a master in heaven. That master is the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son uh, is our master in heaven. All right, so everything that we are going to say to masters, earthly masters, is to have this as its backdrop, that they have a master in heaven. Now, at this point, I want to bring an interesting statement uh, to our consideration, a statement that really would be instructive to earthly masters, to earthly employers, right? Uh, that would affect the way they interact with their slaves or their employees, right? And here is a statement from Scripture spoken by their heavenly master when he was present physically here on the earth. Very familiar statement to us, uh, comes from what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's record of it is chapters 5, 6, and 7. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, the Lord Jesus says, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. And then he makes this application. You cannot serve God and wealth. Okay, so think of earthly masters, people that are actually in that kind of a position of authority, right? And so they're the boss, right? They're the employer, or actually, in, of course, in biblical days, they were actually masters of slaves and so on. And even as the scripture speaks to those masters and reminds them, wait a minute, don't forget, you've got a master in heaven. And actually, what we have to keep in mind is, we can only serve one master, right? And if you've got a choice between the God of heaven and anything else, what's the right choice? Obviously, it's the God of heaven, right? And so, for earthly masters, as they go about their dealings with their employees and so on, Uh, very, very helpful and important for them to remember that they can only serve one master. And that master rightly would be the Lord God himself, right? So do not allow wealth who very much wants to be master, right? Do not allow wealth to be the master that you're serving, right? Uh, Things will not go well, particularly for your employees, if you're serving the master wealth, right? And so the Lord would instruct us, uh, you've got a master, that master is in heaven, and that's the one that you ought to be serving.
So, masters, you also have a master in heaven. Now, before we move on, I do want to pull in the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 6 because it gives us a, another sub-point here under this uh, main point. So our main point is, as do the slaves, so the masters have a master in heaven. Right. So uh, Paul reminds the masters, you also have a master in heaven. And uh, he says the same thing here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Notice the middle of the verse, knowing that your master also is in heaven. But then he adds this. Neither is there respect of persons with him. And so, here in this parallel passage, Paul reminds masters what he said to slaves in chapter 3, verse 25 of Colossians. So if you go back to Colossians, look at the last verse of chapter 3. He that does wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done, and there is no respect of persons. So he's saying that to the slaves, right? And I said in, in dealing with that verse that the context would suggest that really what's in view there is the Lord as the master and there's no respect of persons with him. And a slave needs to know that, right? And a slave needs to know that so that he understands that that master in heaven will deal rightly and justly with him. But it's so interesting that in that parallel passage in Ephesians, uh, the Holy Spirit leads the apostle to make the same point specifically to masters. Masters, you also need to remember that there is no respect of persons with him. So, God being no respecter of persons, God plays no favorites. He is not impressed by how nicely you dress, by the kind of car you drive, by the neighborhood in which you live, by how many people you have working for you or not, or by anything else that you think makes you special. God is not impressed. He, he's no respecter of persons. There's not a person alive that God didn't make and that God didn't ultimately give that person everything that he's got. Right? It all comes from the Lord. All of it. Life itself comes from the Lord. He has no respect of persons. And so God's dealings with each of his creatures, specifically in this context, God's dealings with each human being are always in keeping with his character. And his character never changes. And that actually ought to be a great comfort to us. right? So that we can know that we can trust him. We can know that we can count on him. We can know that he's, he doesn't take bribes. right? He's, he's not going to be corrupted. Right? That heavenly master always deals justly. That heavenly master always deals 
rightly with his subjects. Now, knowing this then is supposed to affect how an earthly master deals with his subjects, his slaves. Again, back in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, deal this way with your slaves, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Right. So how is it that earthly masters are to deal with their slaves? Well, one way of putting it is, as I've put it here in my notes, earthly masters are to deal with their slaves with an eye to their master in heaven. There's no respect of persons with him. He always deals in keeping with his character, and that never changes. So I am, as if, if I am an earthly master, I am to turn around and deal with my subjects with an eye to my master. Right? And he is going to hold me accountable, but he is also going to give me instruction. And he's actually done it right here. Right? So here is what he tells me as a master. Give to your servants that which is just and equal. The word just, of course, uh, is the word right. We get our idea of righteousness from this. Right? It's, what, it's what's right. It's what the way things ought to be. Right? And so we are to deal with those subordinate to us in a righteous manner, right? in a right manner. Alongside of that is this word, King James translates it equal, and that is the idea. It's this idea of that which is, uh, uh, some versions translate it fair, and balanced is the idea. It really is that idea of equality. Right, that is in view there. Right, so it's equality, not necessarily in the way the world thinks of equality, but it's equality, as we'll see in just a minute, in in uh, this kind of a sense. Here's this uh, slave, and he has done this, right. So as you deal with him, you need to deal with him equally with how he has dealt with you, right? So there's that to be that balance. Uh, and again, uh, that will become more clear, I think, in just a minute because we'll come back to that idea. So here are this, this really simple instruction. Give to your slaves that which is just and equal with this eye, remembering that you've got a master in heaven, right? What's interesting is we have much in the Bible that sort of fleshes this out for us. And so I want to give to us an illustration given by Jeremiah of all people. So if you would turn with me to Jeremiah, Chapter 22, and again, uh, Bible geography, Jeremiah is ministering uh, at the time that the southern kingdom goes into exile, 
right? The Lord has, he's done, right? And Babylon comes, Nebuchadnezzar comes, carries them off to captivity. And uh, what is interesting is that the last kings, there were four of them, well, actually three of them that were sons of Josiah, and one of them was a grandson of Josiah, right? So uh, Josiah was reigning. Then one of his sons took the throne on Josiah's death. The king of Egypt actually carried him off. A second son of Josiah took his place, and uh, he died, right? The Lord had him die. And his, grand, his son, so Josiah's grandson, took the throne for a very short time. He was a young man, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and carried him off in one of the early deportations. And so another son of Josiah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, puts on the throne, and uh, we know him as uh, Zedek, mental block, anyway, Zedekiah, is that it? Um, the last son, the last king. Uh, is it Zedekiah? It, 21.1? Zedekiah, absolutely. There you go. Okay, so uh, Zedekiah is the final one. But we're not talking about him. We're talking about Jehoiakim, who's the second one. Okay, so the one that the Lord has died. And uh, here's what Jeremiah has to say as a word of rebuke to Jehoiakim. Actually, one more point to make before we look at that. Josiah was a very godly king. Uh, in Josiah's reign, that's when um, they found the book of the law in the temple. And they bring it and they read it to the king. And he tears his clothes and uh, sends them to seek the Lord, to see whether the Lord would be merciful to them because he understands and recognizes that they are really, really, they, because of their sin against the Lord, they are subject to his wrath as testified to in the word of God. And um, the Lord speaks that he would give them mercy during his reign, but in the reign of his sons that the Lord would take uh, the kingdom away, right? But so Josiah himself is a godly man, right? And he, he is the one, for example, who sends up to Bethel, right? Which is one of the two places in the northern kingdom where they had set up the golden calf, Right and had worshipped there, and he destroys that altar. He burns the bones of their their false priests on it, and so on, which had been predicted, uh, right, uh, years before by a prophet that came uh, when Jeroboam, uh, the the first king of the northern kingdom, set up that altar, right. And uh, Jeroboam's hand froze when he said, seize him, right? And his hand just dries up. He can't retract it, right? And uh, the Lord had said through that prophet, he spoke to the altar and he says, oh, altar, altar, right? The Lord is going to raise up a son of David. Josiah is his name. 
and he's going to destroy you, and he's going to burn uh, human bones on you, and so on. Josiah did that, right? As part of this, this rejection of the idolatry, right? And this calling of people to the Lord. Uh, they observed a Passover uh, during his reign that was uh, without compare, right? The scripture testifies to that. So my point is, Josiah was a God-fearing man. Jehoiakim's father was a God-fearing man. Now let's hear Jeremiah's rebuke to Jehoiakim. Verse 13, Jeremiah 22. Woe unto him that builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong. Now notice this, especially in light of our masters and slaves or employees kind of relationship that uses his neighbor's service without wages, that gives him not for his work. Right. So there's that kind of injustice that Jeremiah is drawing attention to here. Right. Here's Jehoiakim. Uh, he goes on, he, Jehoiakim had said, I will build me a wide house and large chambers and cut him out windows and it's sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion and so on. Right? So he's building this you know, wowsy, fancy mansion, palace. And the people that are building it, he's not even paying them for their wages. Right? And uh, so the Lord is rebuking him through the prophet Jeremiah. Keep reading, verse 15. Shalt thou reign because you close yourself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice, and then it was well with him. He's saying, think back to your dad. Right? He was a godly man. He did judgment. He did justice. It was well with him. I stayed my hand of judgment against him, Right, as he responded rightly to my word. He judged the course of the poor and the needy, and then it was well with him. Now notice this phrase. Was not this, this kind of conduct, was not this to know me, saith the Lord? Right? In other words, he's saying, hey, Josiah acted this way. He dealt Ju- uh, he did just judgment and justice. He judged the, car, the cause of the poor and the needy. Was not this to know me? Right? That's exactly what Paul is saying to masters. Do this to your servants. Give them just that which is just and equal, knowing that you've got a master in heaven. And so this rebuke to Jehoiakim is, you know, you're not doing that. You're not even giving them their wages, right? And a great contrast to uh, his father. And then verse 17, but thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness and for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it, right? So here in Jehoiakim, you have a total wrong example in great contrast to the example of his father, right? who knew the Lord and who did judgment 
and justice, right? And uh, so there is but one example. This is, though, in fact, a recurring theme in Scripture. And you know, we could we could spend a lot of time looking at uh, verses. We're going to do some of that uh, just to hopefully make this point. Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four. And again, as we're reading some of these things, okay, so these are these are statements that are made in Scripture, and some of them are statements made in Old Testament Scripture. In fact, uh, not all of them, but some of them. And uh, again, we might feel a bit of distance between some of these statements and ourselves, but we ought not, right? Because what they are setting forth is a reflection of the character of the God who is speaking. And he does not change, right? And so he's going to talk through the law. He's going to talk to Old Testament nation of Israel and he's going to tell them how they are to conduct themselves and the reason that they're to do this is because of the way he is. Right? So let's notice this in Deuteronomy 24. Look at verse 14. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy. Whether he be of your brethren, a fellow Israelite, or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates, at his day thou shalt give him his hire. Neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and sets his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto me, and it be sin unto thee. Verse 17. Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. Right? So you have this principle. And don't take advantage of the poor and the needy, the fatherless, the widow, right? Those that would easily be taken advantage of. He says, you can't do that, right? And uh, challenging them, especially verses 14 and 15, right? When you've got someone and they're doing service for you, end of day, you've got to pay them, right? And of course, in that day, you know, you didn't have a bank account and, you know, just auto deposit my check into my bank account, right? And do it once, twice a month and I'm good. no. It was a day by day by day. I mean, you got to go buy what you're going to eat, right? That day. They don't have refrigerators. Don't have a nice big deep freeze plugged out in the back of the tent, right? I mean, so they had to have their, it was this day's labor for this day's wages for this day's food, right? And the Lord's saying, you know, this is the way I want you to do it. End of day. You be sure to pay them. Right? Very interesting. Um, let's turn forward to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. <clears throat> so Malachi is writing after the exile and some had returned to the promised land. But unfortunately, here's this this final prophet of the Old Testament time, and he has to speak rebuke 
to the people of God yet again. And notice uh, verse uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment. God is speaking. I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against all of these, the sorcerers and against adulterers and against false swearers and, for our purposes tonight, notice, against those that oppress the hireling, that is the wage earner, the servant in his wages. So you oppress them in your wages. Okay, I'm going to come against you in judgment, God says. Just like I come against sorcerers and adulterers and false swearers. Okay, those that oppress the hireling, those that oppress the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Right? So all of these Various manifestations of sin are a demonstration that you are not thinking rightly about me. You're not fearing me. right? You're not giving me my rightful place as your master. right? And so that gives leave in their thinking to sin against these that are dependent upon them. And the Lord says, no, that doesn't work. I'll come against you in judgment. So you've got Deuteronomy, one of the first five books written by the prophet Moses. You've got Malachi, one of the last written in the Old Testament. And we're saying the same thing. Interesting. The human heart, in its sinfulness, doesn't change. Except by the gracious work of God, right? When someone hears this book and turns, right, in repentance and says, that God will be my God and I'll listen to him and I'll live for him and I will allow that to affect all of my dealings even when I'm in a position of authority and even when I can. I mean, just because... No, you know, I'm not going to pay you for whatever, right? I mean, I'm, what's he going to say? I'm the one in authority. I own him or whatever, right? And the Lord says, no, he's calling us to something different, right? And so there is, folks, this is the kind of transformation that the Lord wants to work in those whose lives are hid with Christ in God. Right? How chapter 3 of Colossians open. Right? If we then be risen with Christ, right? have you been made alive by the Spirit of the living God dwelling within you? Okay, you've got to treat your employees different than the world does. Right? Now again, we've got some in the world obviously that recognize a right way to treat employees and I'm not saying that you know, lost people only do bad for their employees. I'm not saying that. Right? But we as Christian people especially need to be careful, right? That we give what is just and what is equal to our employees. Uh, James talks about this as well. Uh, James chapter 5. 
So we have it spoken in the New Testament. And what's interesting here, it's a rebuke to rich people. And again, it's not just rich people that sin in this way, but um, again, it's who are you serving? God or mammon, money, wealth, right? And if you turn aside to serve wealth, that's what I said earlier, it's not going to go so well for those that are working for you in many, many cases. But notice uh, James chapter 5, verse 1. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten and your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. In other words, the point is, listen, it's like God said in the Old Testament prophets, I am going to come against you in judgment, right? So you've got your gold, you've got your silver, you've got your nice nice clothes, and they serve you well here, but you're heaping up treasure for the last days, those last days when I come against you in judgment, and all of this is going to do you no good, is my paraphrase. But notice verse 4. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you, kept back by fraud, cries... And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of hosts. Right? Or, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, into the ears of your Master in heaven. Right? And by the way, the Lord is the Master of the unbelievers too. They don't acknowledge it. Right? And that's part of why they're condemned, but it doesn't change the fact he is their master as well. Right? And the point that is made here is that kind of a point. You know, that, that cry of those that you have dealt unjustly with enters into the ears of the Lord. Okay, two other references. Sorry, three. <laughs> but uh, Proverbs chapter 11 <clears throat> So I want you to turn to Proverbs 11 and then keep your hand there and turn to Deuteronomy 25. So we'll go back to one more in Deuteronomy. I want to have them right handy so that we can just flip quickly. All right, so Proverbs 11 and Deuteronomy 25. So once you have that handy, let's do Proverbs first. Proverbs 11, first verse. A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Okay, so here's where we come back to what Paul said. Give what is just and equal to your slaves. This idea of balance and a fair balance, right? And so the idea would be, Okay, so um, I owe you a shekel. And so what I'm going to do is I've got this little scale, right, a a weigh scale. And I'm going to put a shekel weight on this side and I'm going to put 
know, the silver on this side, and we're going to balance. Right? And what the passage says, a false balance. In other words, the weight that I put on this side, I'm saying it's a shekel, but it's not really a shekel. Right? It's under a shekel. So here's my shekel. Here's what I owe you. See, it's balanced. Okay, so the Lord is saying a false balance is an abomination to him. But a just weight is his delight. Deuteronomy 25. Verse 13. Thou shalt not have in thy bag different weights a great and a small. Right? So when I'm giving you, I use the small weight. When you're giving me, and we happen to use my scale, I use the heavy weight. Don't do that. Thou shalt not have in thine house different measures, a great and a small, but thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Right? Or, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, to your heavenly master. Right? It's an abomination. Right? So when we do not deal justly, when we do not deal equally, right? with that just weight and measure, God hates it. Your master hates it. And he takes note of that dealing. And he says that he will deal with it. Last reference. Good thing, because we're out of time. Matthew chapter 24. Bible geography. Where are we turning when we turn to Matthew 24. Well, there are only 28 chapters in Matthew, so we know that we're getting near the end. And we know that the end of the Gospels, all four of them, is occupied, really a majority of uh, the section there at the end is occupied with Jesus' last week before his crucifixion. So here he is, He's in his last week before his crucifixion. And he is teaching his disciples. And uh, here we are, this is part of what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. So he's gone out of the temple, uh, across the Kidron Valley, on up to the side of the Mount of Olives, and he's taken a seat there on the side of the Mount of Olives. When you're seated on the side of the Mount of Olives, you can look back over the temple, the temple mount, and see just the glory and splendor of it. And actually, as they were leaving the temple, chapter 4, the 24, the first part of the chapter, his, his disciples are just, you know, wow. You know, I mean, they're from Galilee, right? You know, it's like, you know, you and I go to New York City. Wow. You know, but it's that idea, right? I mean, it's just, this is stupendous. These huge, great, big, huge stones, right, that make up this, uh, this wall outside the temple and all of that uh, wonderfulness, right? And uh, so Jesus takes this occasion to teach them. Uh, much of his teaching in the Olivet Discourse is focused on answering their questions. So let's look at the start of chapter 24. 
Jesus went out and departed from the temple. His disciples came unto him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? That's where they're going. right? And so much of what he's giving to them is an answer to those questions. And in fact, in part of the answer, you know, he keeps saying to them, you know, you don't know the day or the hour. So what I'm saying to you is this, watch. And Peter says, Lord, are you saying that to us or are you saying that to everybody? And so he goes on with another story that makes the point. You need to watch, right? And so again, much of the emphasis is on the master... Though he's going away, is going to return. The master is going to return. Okay, are you with me? The master is going to return. My master is going to return. Your master is going to return. You have these earthly relationships and to the extent that you are in a position of authority over someone else, master-slave, parent-child, husband-wife, you need to exercise that authority knowing that you've got a master in heaven. Well, what does that matter? One day, you're going to stand before him. He's not forever gone. One day, he's going to return, right? Or I'm going to step into his presence if I die, right? You're with me? This master, right, that Paul is saying, you know, here's some instruction, right? Give what is just and equal. Why? Because that's a reflection of his character. He's your master. You can't forget that. He cares about this. Look at all of this Bible that talks about it. Again and again and again. Just wage, just measure. You know, you withheld those wages. You know, I'm going to just... That master is coming back. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 24, verse 42. Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would have not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes." Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made master? I mean, it's not the same word, but it's the same idea. The Lord has made him ruler over the house. Right? Are you with me? Here's the master, and he's got this servant that he he has made ruler over the rest of them. 
right? That's exactly the kind of thing that Paul is talking about, right? Someone who has a position of earthly authority, ultimately given from God, right? All earthly authority ultimately is delegated from God, right? So he's saying, who then is this faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing, giving what's just and equal. Blessed is that servant. Verily I say unto you that he, the the real master, shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. In other words, I don't have to worry about him. Right? I mean, he's gone. He's gone for a long time. Now, I don't even have to worry about him. And shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? And again, that kind of language... This is an illustration, right? Jesus is using this as an illustration. But that kind of language, when you line it up with other passages of Scripture, that kind of language suggests that that servant didn't believe, right? Cut, appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. They have a face. But it's a false face, right? They say, but by their deeds they show what's really in the heart. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, that's not to say that that true Christians don't sin. We do sin sometimes, right? But that's why we've got our Bibles that the Holy Spirit would use to show us, oh, you know, I've got to change, right? But that's the point, right? That we hear God's word and he speaks to masters and he speaks to servants and he speaks to uh, husbands and wives and parents and children and we hear what he says and it's like, okay, right? He's my master and I love him and he's given me everything and I want to live for him so that when he does return, right, it will be the blessing that he will make me ruler over all his goods. And again, I, you know, we don't know what all, how the Lord's going to arrange all of that, right? We'll let that to him. By the way, however he does it, we know that he will be just. He'll be equal, right? That's his character, right? And so the Lord has challenged us, right? Our living, he cares about our living, he cares about how we conduct our business. He cares about how we train our children. He cares about you know, our marriage relationships. He cares about these things. Right? And he would like to transform us. Right? To take us from what we were by nature, 
And as we saw, right, human nature doesn't change except a gracious God, right, is given leave, as it were, right, to change. Lord, change. Do your work. Help me, right? This is your word. I see it. I know that I've got to conduct my business that way. I know that I've got to deal with those that are under me that way. Lord, help me, right? And, uh, you know, enable me. Give me wisdom. Help give me the kind of humility, right, that, that allows me when I mess up, right, and when I make mistakes, when I sin and my dealings and my affairs, Lord, that, that I'm able to own it in a gracious manner and do what I can to fix it, right? None of us are perfect, right? We're, we are going to sin in our human relationships, right? These passages that we've been studying, these verses in Colossians, they help us to know the right standard. None of us are going to perfectly do that, right? Uh, and I, I, That's not okay, but it's okay, right? In the sense that, you know, it, we ought not do that, and we don't want to do that. But the Lord has provided even for that. right? And again, 1 John 1, 9. If we, as children of God, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all, from all unrighteousness. We have a master. All of us have a master. He's a good master. And I guess what the apostle is calling us to do is to serve him, right? To serve him well, to serve him faithfully, uh, to serve him until he comes. By his grace, we can do that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, for your counsel and instruction. We need this counsel. And we need this instruction. And we must confess, Lord, that we have failed in many, on many occasions and in many ways. Lord, I pray we cannot go back and undo those failures of the past. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect upon what our conduct has been to think upon what your word tells us is the right way. And Lord, I pray that you would move us to seek you and your enablement, to seek you, Lord, to take by the power of your spirit and effect work in us the change that we see described in the pages of Scripture particularly as we've been studying here in Colossians 3, Lord, and now into 4, but this putting off of the old man, this putting on of the new man that is that bears your image, the image of the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for your grace that forgives our sin. And we do thank you, Lord, for your power that enables us to change. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do just that.
and that you would bless our human relationships, Lord, uh, how we need your working among us. We pray your blessing as we give ear to the counsel of your word. And we will thank you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that it would enable us to shine the light brighter in our community. There are so many around us, Lord, who need Christ. And I pray that you would help our lives, lived for your glory, lived in service to you as our master, to be useful in pointing others to our same, our Lord, to you. So we pray for your working and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.